0: I wish I would have recorded you saying that this is a serious podcast.
1: It is a very serious podcast. You, no laughing, no joy throughout the whole thing.
0: Okay. No delight.
1: No delight. I'm shooting. I'm rolling up. All right. We get that in me. The-
0: <laughs> yeah, it's all in. So, uh, Risto here at George Mason University. I am here with Dr. Susanna Stevens from the University of Canterbury in New Zealand to discuss the article, The Joy of Movement, The Non-Participant in Physical Education Curriculum Design. Um, this article was published in the Journal of Curriculum Studies in Health and Physical Education. And as always, I'll link to the full citation of the article in the show notes. Uh, Susie, thanks for coming on to the podcast. Appreciate it.
1: I'm really excited to be here. It's actually really good to get this to happen, which is cool.
0: So. Throughout your article, you use these terms: joy of movement and movement pleasure. Um, so, I guess a good way to start is by asking you to explain what these terms mean and the importance of developing these feelings toward movement in the PE curriculum.
1: Yeah, and that's and that's a really big question. Um, I like to starting start with, with the big it... questions. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. I like it. I'm I'm joyful. This is um this is a good question to start with, um and and probably quite important as well because there are many takes on what the joy of movement is or what movement pleasure is, and I guess um I come from um, an embodied understanding and I'll try and unpack that a little bit um so people know where I'm positioned when I'm talking about this um heavily. Uh, heavily influenced I think by Ian Wallard's work um, around body reflexive pleasures and what he talks about is he he does a really good job of of saying that when you move as a whole body when you find pleasure um, you have lots of things that impact on that so you have the physiological experience itself so we know how our muscles feel our bones feel we know what's going on in our body we know um neurotransmitters are released we we know that stuff right um but there's also a lot of things that are that are playing with that as well we have the psychological experience um we have the social context in which that's happening and also the time and the space right because you know something can be socially constructed nowadays which might bring pleasure, but way back in the past, that might not have brought that person pleasure, mainly because the way that something was socially constructed or accepted. So I I think it's a really useful way of understanding joy and movement because it is very personal to the individual that's experiencing that. But by using a a framework that allows for um, and accepts the importance of those social constructions around that person. We understand that the person's not experiencing pleasure in a bit of a vacuum here. It's not void of what's happening in society, and it's not void of all of the um, all of the determinants that kind of shape the way somebody somebody experiences pleasure. So, it, I think for me, when I use the terms joy of movement, I'm thinking about it in this balanced way. I'm thinking about it. Um, where time and space, the physiology, the psychology, and the social context are all important. And then I guess all of those experiences are, are shaped um, according to what they look like at, at particular time and space. When I um, when I started my research in joy and pleasure of movement, I looked at... Um, authors like Chicks in the High and and Flow State and what it felt like to be in flow state. But that was very psychological. Um and then there were other authors like Kat Woodward who talked about being in the zone and what it meant um to be in the zone and that incorporated a little bit more of the physiological element as well. So I think for me, when I talk about these things, um I'm not talking about just happiness, just a feeling just the psychology of what it feels to, to to be moving. Um, I'm talking about a really deep, um, of understanding around embodiment.
0: Yeah. And it was interesting. You, you wrote in here somewhere that you talked about how we've also been like the way that we display pleasure in physical education has been socially constructed and we've been taught how to display pleasure by if I do something good, like score a goal during a soccer scrimmage inside of a PE class, I get to high five somebody. I don't get to like take my shirt off and like wave it around and <laughs> slide on the field. Like you would seen in other settings, like we know what's appropriate. And that was, that took me back. I was like, well, yes, it is not appropriate to do the latter, but yes, it is appropriate to do the former. And I didn't think about that. That was something that somebody had taught me like, this is how you can display that you are feeling joy. So, um, yeah, there's just like a lot of levels to this in in uh, in your paper and um, so no no yeah it did, but
1: <laughs> no there there is there's a depth there's a complexity to joy but I think that's really important for teachers to understand that. You know, we do shape the way that joy can be expressed in, in the classroom, in the gym space. Um, and, and what you described there, or what I was writing about in the paper, um, a lot of it comes down to models. You know, we look at how to socially and emotionally behave in the classroom. And we have models-based teaching where we want we want behavior to look in a particular way. And that's fine that's okay. I'm not saying there's a right or a wrong, but I'm saying there should be an awareness of the fact that we are shaping ideal behaviours. And in doing so, we're also shaping the ideal, uh, the unideal behaviours, the the, the behaviours we don't want, the behaviours that we consider to not be um, valuable pleasure. Right. Um, you know, so I, I think for me, when, when I first learnt um it, to, to train as a physical education teacher, there were a lot of things like um, making sure that you moved groups from one space to the next space and you um, you, kept, you kept control of those groups. So if you had children off doing cartwheels or, or frolicking, um, you tried to bring them back in. Now, they are beautiful examples of joy and pleasure of movement, but they weren't okay in that space. They they were not accepted behaviors.
0: Yeah. Because you don't accept that because we're not doing cartwheels at this point. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Exactly. The
0: unconscious <laughs> exclusion of of joy, which you lead in in your paper about that, which was a great way to put that. Um, let me let me ask you this. Um, what does the pleasure um of movement look like in PE and how can we as teachers uh, develop a potential space where we can facilitate joy?
1: Yeah, uh, this is, uh, this is another really big question. Um, and so I, I think, uh, I'll start with the things it, it, just on the back of that conversation that we have, um, that we just had, I'll continue some of the things that I found, um, in probably my biggest study in, in my PhD when I followed a couple of classes Um, over a long period of time, about eight months, um, and observed their joy of movement and their movement in physical education and settings. And some things that I found in those classes were just what we've been talking about, the off-task behavior or the abnormal behavior that provided some form of movement pleasure was often shut down. Um, The other other pleasures um, tended to be really sportified. So if someone was athletic, If they were good at sport, then they were deemed to be doing the right thing and there was a pleasure in that performance. So the kids that weren't that great at sport didn't find joy because that joy wasn't really rewarded. Their joy wasn't really rewarded. That joy of learning tended to be more around the performative elements. If you could succeed and do well um, in a context, you were seen to be a good PE student, and you could have that joy and you could celebrate that success. A couple of other things they really noticed was um, how gendered joy was. It was really sexualized um, when we were doing dance context. Um, and so it was often that those defining as male um, really felt like they couldn't display certain physicalities mm-hmm. because acknowledging that they might get pleasure from that the moving of the hips or the real loose sort of um creative movements that went with dance and were often ridiculed or excluded or, or laughed they were laughed at so there was this real risk there was a social risk to displaying those forms of pleasures um and then the other thing i noticed as well is that it did tend to be models based or based on behaviorism so we tend to give Um, grades and assessments for one for the performance development, but two for things like grades for uniform, being on time, what it looks like to be a valuable team member. So if we link that to pleasure and and movement pleasure, we can see that lots of elements are rewarded around what movement pleasure is acceptable. And what happens is the stuff that's not rewarded in that space tends to get marginalized and minimized. So I think as a teacher, the things that I've learned um, that I apply when I think about joy of movement or movement pleasure, is I tend to really critically unpack what is normalised in my classes or what's normalised with curriculum, what's normalised with the model that I'm using. So if I use any tools in the classroom, that's possibly the first question that I ask is what am I normalising with this tool? Um, what am I accepting with this tool? Um, I then also tend to plan for experiences that challenge thinking about movement norms. So not thinking about play as as an inherent good, just something that will naturally incite joy. You know, I think some people think that play um, play settings are naturally good because they allow children and students to just have freedom. But those freedoms are still constructed and constrained. You could have a child who was playing um, and they were also being quite racist. Or you could have a child that was playing and they could be really harmful in their actions. So because we're in a learning environment, because we're in a school, we can't just assume that play, these play settings are naturally going to allow um I'm going to allow something that's that's good that's that's actually going to contribute to the educational element or the learning element. Um, a couple of other things I do is I I really push for and allow the silliness and the playfulness and the banter as a part of learning. Um, I don't see performance and um, and playfulness as a dichotomy. I don't want we don't have to sacrifice that joy and that play to actually get really great performance. Um, and I think sometimes when we categorise students or when we think about groupings, we sometimes go, okay, we've got the social lot, and then with the social lot, we think that that means lower skill, or we go, okay, we've got the mm-hmm. the performers, we've got the the real sporty kids here that want to play in this particular way, and we associate that with high skill. And so I think by just labelling those what we're doing is we're categorizing something and we're taking the ability for pleasures to look and feel in a different way um and i think the last thing is lots of multiple contexts um when i plan any sorts of classes i have student choice student voice throughout you know what things bring you joy what do you like doing how can you help construct what um, what contexts could we use? What do we hate as a class? What do we not want to be doing? Um, and really thinking differently about abilities and capabilities. Uh, thinking about, okay, where are the strengths that are in this, this group and how are we going to play all those strengths? And, um, and everybody has great capabilities in that space. So I think some of those key things for me have really changed how I've been able to see more joy and foster more joy um, and, and really rethinking about the priorities of, of what movement pleasure can can offer in a, in a formal learning space.
0: And and going back to that unconscious exclusion, what we're taught in PEAT programs often is you have to have this highly structured lesson plan, you have to do these, this is task one, and then it moves to this, and here's how you refine it, and here's how you extend it, and that, part that we are doing just because we that's what we know is taking that joy, is taking that pleasure out, is taking that movement pleasure out, instead of then like building that in. Because if you think about a lot of people, if you just ask random PE teachers what their goal of PE is, a lot of them say fun. And wherever that <laughs> wherever that lies in the spectrum of what they should be like But I I just had Stephanie Benny on uh, about meaningful PE and her paper and um, she had a table in there that talked about what was the goal of PE before they did the study. And a lot of those teachers said fun Mm. and enjoyment and being getting kids active and moving. But then when we plan that activity, we don't plan to insert joy or meaningful experiences in there. And that's just the way that most of us have been taught how to do it. So I guess, A sidebar question here is how do we how do we change that at the PEAT level like should we be teaching movement experience that like enhance joy or should that be like a little box there to remind you all the time to say like (laughs) remember to put pleasure and joy into this lesson
1: yeah that's a really great question and I think I mean it's it's two part right I, I think Peak, I, I mean I always in, in my peak classes I always have a session on prioritizing pleasure um, and and deconstructing the environment and, and what we're trying to achieve as, as teachers um, for those very reasons because I, I think that you know when when the heat goes on and you have to do what is assessed and and what is on paper, that does go out the window. Yeah. We naturally just think that if we can get fun, if we can get joy, awesome, that's great. But we don't we don't actively plan for that. Um, so I think absolutely Pete is the place that for having conversations like this and challenging any initial teacher's perspective around what the point of physical education is. Um, and if the point really is For people to engage and find like find their their love for movement and find find themselves in that embodied state if that really is the goal and we see that contributing to lifelong behaviors throughout the life course then why are we not prioritizing it more i i mean it's an excuse just to just to kind of roll over and go well if it happens it happens um but if that's what's going to make the difference
0: it keeps people coming back for physical activity later on in life you do what you enjoy doing or you find meaning in doing but then and we say that you know and shape america in the u.s has you know things that lead towards active uh you know having the knowledge and the attitude to continue being active for life but then like you said when when you push the feet to the fire, you forget all of that part, and you're like, "Let's hyperstructure this lesson so we get the content in." We have to learn how to dribble the exactly. basketball today. Yeah. So exactly. Let me ask you. You talked about this term "non-participant," and can you mm. talk about how you position this as an analogy for the lack of joy in PE planning? And how what do you mean by this term "non-participant" in this specific paper?
1: Yeah. Great question. Um, in New Zealand, we have students that sit out from PE, it's probably the same across the world. Um, they might bring a note, They might. Uh, the school might exclude them if they don't have the correct gear. There's lots of different policies that connect with different schools. They have the autonomy over what that looks like, but fundamentally they get labelled non-participants. So they're non-participants for that day, for that lesson. Um, and you might have two or three non-participants in in a physical education class. Um, And the article is really playing on this um, because I would argue that we don't really care too much for our non-participants. And I, I say this with a heavy heart because I don't want that to be the case, but I just don't think we do. I don't think we care for these students. We might get them to hold a stopwatch or we might get them to help with the gear. We might sit down and talk to them about their day or ask them about themselves. We might try and have a little bit of, of a chat around, you know, where they are at. But we don't tend to reflect too much past that. And I think the reason for using the non participant here in this article was that if we look Really differently at a non-participant by providing a really safe, needs-based, inclusive environment, um, anti-racist, you know, a really, really inclusive of genders, abilities. If we structure a really safe place in physical education, we can actively encourage their participation. So we can change. We can change the non-participant, right? Um, and if we know, if we go deeper, if we learn about their families if we start to talk to them and learn what they love and what they don't love, if we understand the antecedents to the behaviour of them removing themselves from physical education, then we start to know a little bit more and we can actively plan for it. And I think that this was the idea around using the long participant in this article, is that joy, if we really want joy, we have to understand it. We have to plan for it. And at the very least, we have to start thinking about it empathetically. We can't just assume that it happens, and we can't just assume that it, it you know, that it, it's going to be something that comes to part. So that was the reason behind using the non-participant and and thinking about joy in the same way. It's left on the side. You know, it, it, we might throw it a stopwatch every now and again, but other than that. Not really top of mind. Not really a big deal. That'll be fine, you know. <laughs> I
0: I highlighted and circled this piece that you say: if we know our students' families and the lives they live, then we know exactly why they might be trying to exclude themselves from PE that day. And I I, it's it's a simple concept, but it's it's true. Like if you really deeply know your students, if you are enacting culturally responsive pedagogy and you are in the community you understand the community and the needs and you can also understand why they're not participating in your class and you know that non-participant so if you understand the wants and needs of your students you can also plan for that joy in, in that in that same way so that that really um that really clicked with me um so can you talk about how, uh, how is Joy of Movement integrated into New Zealand P curriculum or arguably not integrated into that curriculum?
1: I think at the moment, it's, um, it, our curriculum is, is what we call a loose curriculum. I mean, it's subject to interpretation, and we allow flexibility for different contexts and, and different um, cultural needs as well. So it, it, our curriculum is cool in those regards. But it also means that it's subject to teacher interpretation and also some really good professional learning development and if you have someone that that can't navigate that or is new to the environment then that can be really challenging because like looking for examples or looking for good practice um, it it can be difficult if they don't have a wraparound and they don't have support in that space so i would say that the curriculum allows for joy um, it it's there's some statements that are written in our national curriculum that that talk about pleasure and talk about experiences for life um, that will really think critically about what the point of physical education is but I think what happens is is there's still this this kind of neoliberal sort of mashed up um want to assess and normalize and so as these as we go through the the achievement standards and as we go through the back end of the curriculum where it starts to get to the nitty-gritty around assessment it starts to minimize those joyful elements it it really puts an emphasis on analyzing and um and performance and what does this look like or feel like instead of instead of focusing on experiences and being exposed to different experiences and privileging joy. So I think that um, our curriculum itself is an, is an amazing document. And I can say this because Ian Colpin, the the, um, the emeritus professor who I wrote this piece of work with, he had a really um, critical role in the writing of that curriculum. So we have hot debate over the, what this looks like and he's humble enough to admit that, that joy isn't prioritized enough in there. Um, and so we have great, we have great chats, but we, we, <laughs> we have a, we have a strong enough relationship that I can give him a bit of stick about that. Um, so I, I'd say that the, there is an, there is an allowance for joy in there. There's room for joy in there, but it, teacher interpretation and assessment sometimes prevents that from happening.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I see that you, you talked about curriculum being kind of loose. That there's a lot of flexibility in that. Would you say that in New Zealand that the uh, Ministry of Education trusts teachers?
1: Yeah, absolutely, 100. Uh, percent I think that the Ministry. I mean, there's there's a professionalism that goes with that, right? I mean, you go you you go to university. You you got you get a graduate degree. You um you know, you work really hard to become a physical education teacher and so there should be high trust um, from ministries into the teaching profession to be able to do their job and do it well. Um, and yes, assessment is important and yes, we need to know that learning is occurring but um, but that's for learning, that's for the students, that's not for a teachers' ability to do their job. I mean, it's, just, it's <laughs> I think that, um, I think that sometimes uh we get carried away with the the assessment and the the boundaries that we place around teachers, and it means that we minimize their ability to do their job well, yep,
0: yeah um Bossy Salberg and uh, another scholar, I don't remember his name they they wrote this uh, book about the Finnish education system, and it was called Trust in Teachers or something to that effect, but they talked about how. know it's a similar program you do a an undergraduate you do a master's degree you have a high autonomy of trust to do what you want um and i don't think that exists as much in the us the the programs are highly structured like we have a local school district here that's that's very very big um and they have Mm -hmm. all of their um teachers follow a pacing guide so everybody's teaching similar topics similar things at the same time this is what you are going to teach And it helps the teacher that doesn't really put in a lot of effort. They just come in and follow directions. But the person who is really creative or wants to do an activist approach through this or wants to run this through some other model, it's not impossible, but it makes it more difficult because then you're like the salmon Mm -hmm. running up the uh, the wrong way, you know? And um, so um, I I like that there's a lot of trust there. Um, You also mentioned in the paper that physical education has gone through this historical struggle to develop curriculum legitimacy um, and how that has uh, challenged the discourse of joy of movement in in the field of PE. So can you kind of expand on that and share how policy has influenced these decisions in the last few years? Yeah, of course. Um, I
1: I think in general, physical education has always loved to measure uh, you know, we love consistency, standards, records. It it, it comes from that real fortified notion of, of what it means to move. And and so that, that heavily influences our space in terms of practice and in terms of policy. I think traditionally PE in New Zealand and, and probably globally as well, um, is really lent on the sciences and or public health agendas to gain credibility in this space because Uh, You know, when we think about value added by a subject, it it has always been a a historical discourse that you've got literacy and numeracy, which have added significant value. You have these STEM subjects that have added significant value. And these more aesthetic and creative type of subjects, like uh, the delights of the arts and the drama and music, have similar challenges because they are often pitched as something that is not as, ac- uh, not as academic as what other subjects are. And, and I would say that that, that, that kind of comes down to neoliberalism and societal contribution. So it's what's creating the most productive humans, really, in life. Um, now, we know that's not the case as teachers. So I say this, and I'm probably preaching to a, a large audience that understands that that's not the case. Um, but I, I still think that policy tries to shape it that way. Um, you know, in New Zealand, still we have strong public health agendas where we are looking um, at targeting things like obesity, and we've got these, we've got these, these, you know, these um, mandates that come from governments that come from a higher level, and these and they consider these sorts of threats and concerns, and they say, how are we going to fix these problems? And they look to schools as the site to do that. And that's not the site to do that. We know that as educators. We know that that learning is the most important thing that happens in a school, and we shouldn't be trying to, to, you know, to enact these public health agendas. So I think there's always a bit of push. There's always a bit of push and pull. There's always a... um, There's always a little bit of a political uh, struggle and strain when it comes to health and physical education. Um, In New Zealand as well, we know that our primary school settings, um, and that's our five-year-olds up to around 12-year-olds, and our secondary school settings, which is around 12, 13, up to 17, 18, we know that there are often lots of providers of health and well-being that try to come into these spaces and deliver services, or they might be athletics um, or sporting um, services that um, are basically private offerings of, we can do your PE better than you can. We can do your health PE better than you can. So I think policy policy in New Zealand has tried to see that curriculum take priority and that curriculum's taught well. Um, but in practice it's there's it often still that real struggle. Um, there's often still the leaning on the sciences, or the leaning on the public health agendas to get funding and support. Um and and so yeah, I I think I think that there's that's still going on. And I don't know if there's an end to that, to be honest, Dristo, mm-hmm. like I think I I, th- I think about it and I think I this this stuff was happening 20 years ago 30 years ago we were talking about this a long time ago it just tends to change um, and morph into other things but it doesn't go. Yeah,
0: and I um, I highlighted this piece because I think you you uh, cite Evans 2014 about how um, the neoliberal political agenda values and shapes PE for three. Uh, broad general aims and I think that like couple lines and I'm I'll read it but those couple lines to me was the best explanation of when somebody says what what is neoliberalism and why does it affect PE how does it affect PE and I I get that question every now and then and it's just like s- super hard to kind of pin down for for me and a lot of people when they see that like on a slide or on a title of a paper and they say neoliberalism, they're like, I'm not going to read that paper because I don't understand what neoliberalism <laughs> is. Um, Sarah,
1: Sarah yeah.
0: So I think was, this was a really good summary. So first, um, the aim of general health and well-being in order to minimize the economic cost of state healthcare. So using PE as a vehicle to cut costs in healthcare. Uh, secondly... Um, and associated with health and well-being is the need for PE to address the burgeoning obesity epidemic. You could—that's very clear. Like, you go to a school anywhere in the U.S. or Western world, you're like, PE is here for fixing obesity, right? And not every single PE teacher says that, but it's overall archingly like obesity <laughs> is a huge topic. And thirdly, um, and
1: even if they. I- Oh I was I was going to say, and even if they don't say it, it's in things like we need to run for this amount of time throughout the course of the day if we're if we're moving this much for this amount of time for fitness or for for movement reasons, this will fix our obesity crisis. I mean, this is how ridiculous it is so even if people aren't saying it, they're unconsciously creating this this discourse
0: yeah and yeah. And even if they're not saying it in out loud, those researchers are putting it in their research applications. They might not buy into yeah. this, but then they're like, well, you need to give me money because obesity is really a big issue and PE could be the fix. And then they write the paper and they don't talk about that part, but that's the route to the money, right? Because that is the yep. the cost there. So in the third part, PE needs to contribute to the production of elite athletes in order to maximize economic advantages associated with the political economy of sport so like you put those three things together in that like tight paragraph i understand neoliberalism a lot better so thank you for that hopefully that makes it's <laughs>
1: <That's sense>. okay <laughs> well i hope it does i mean it, it simple good right so it, you know i i think that Breaking it down in terms of PE, um, it, sometimes we do see these things. We see ne- neoliberalism and we see really heavy discussions and, and we we don't think that applies to our space, but it does. It really does. So using those practical examples are, are vital.
0: Yeah. So as we kind of wrap up, um, can you expand on this idea that PE teachers need to think more um, philosophically regarding the nature and values of what PE looks like to include that non-participant in the curriculum?
1: Yeah, and we we kind of touched on this before, but um, I, I think it really starts with thinking about what we want physical education to achieve, what the, the role or the purpose of physical education is. Um, and we don't teach subjects at school, so kids will be performative experts in that subject. I mean, you, very few people that do math become mathematicians Mm -hmm. is my, is my point. Right. So I don't know why we're so fixated that PE would do the same, you know, people in PE would become elite athletes. You know, we, we teach at school, school is learning environments, right? So we teach at school to elicit inspiration. We want them to have a passion and excitement for learning. So this here should drive our physical education. You know, we, we should be thinking about, we want to incite some passion, some excitement for learning as a whole body. That's, that's really what we're doing here. Um, and students finding that passion for being a, a moving, living body, acknowledging that it's part of their life, it's special. We have a word in New Zealand, um, a Māori word called taungna, um and taonga means very special, very sacred. And so we, you know, your body, your body's karma, it's special, um, and it's very individual. And this is one of these really unique subject areas where we can embrace the whole body as a learner. We're not trying to separate the brain from the body. We're not seeing the body as excess baggage in what the brain can hold and what learning or knowledge the brain can hold. We have this beautiful learning space where we accept and we value, um, you know, someone as a whole, as a whole person, as a whole learner. Um, and so I, I think, you know, when I when I see the importance of physical education, I think that these aspects are things that we can plan for, we can teach well, we can assess um, not how well our body moves in comparison to others, or in a singular test or just physi- physiologically but really thinking about what we want students to achieve as a, as a whole living breathing human um, and I think making meaning is really important I know that you touched on that a couple of times as well but it's a vital way that we can help students understand and appreciate this these concepts that I'm talking about um, so it, it's that it's the thinking, and I get, like, I, I, I'm a teacher too, and I get that there's there's a lot of pressure. There's pressures on time, and there's pressure around what we are required to do and and how that assessment l- might look. Um, but I think at times, too, we underestimate the, the ability we have to shape a classroom environment, yep. the ability we have to incite these sorts of pleasures for our kids. Um, we do actually have quite a lot of autonomy in that
0: space. Yeah, and I mean, it's the same as if you go back to that non-participant, um, you know, analogy. Like, you have the non-participant. You can make a huge difference in that person's life by reaching out, by planning for that, and the same thing for finding joy. I think. I mean, teacher trust needs to in- increase in certain areas for sure. But if you have that autonomy in that ability to plan your own lessons in the right way, you can really instill that that joy that is usually the end goal or the end assumption of how people will be physically active when they graduate grade 12 or 13 or whatever it is in that country. We assume that they will be physically active for life, but that takes enjoyment, that takes joy and delight and all of those things to keep going. and And I feel like you know, you you've done a really good job in this paper, uh, breaking that down and and challenging people to challenging teachers to try to try to instill that joy in all of those lessons. So thank you.
1: It's cool. No, it's good. I really in, um I enjoy hearing your take on it too. And I I really like the parts that you explain about how they help how they help you understand it because again, you know, you can write these things, you can, (laughs) you can say whatever you want in a paper. um, But at the end of the day, it's the audience interpretation and what they get from that paper and how they can apply that paper or or what they reject in that paper as well. I mean, because, you know, if somebody gets nothing from this then they, they, they can just park this, this is, this is something that they don't need to enter into. So again, it's just, it's, it's thinking, it's just, it's just one thing people to think on a, on a deeper level about something that's often op- often seen as a flippant or just a, a passive, a something that will happen, just a, a natural something that will happen.
0: Yeah. And this, and this paper caught me in a place where like I, um, I read here, uh, delightful intrinsic movement can include creativity, self-expression, a sense of wonder, harmony, friendship, fun a sense of fulfillment, challenge, risk, sensuous joy, empathy, and competition. And to me, I get almost all of those in jujitsu. And now having two back surgeries, I no longer do jujitsu. And I'm in this space in my life where I'm like, okay, so I'm going to go sign up for this swimming membership at the swimming club and i'm gonna walk more and i'm gonna ride my bike and i i bought a new road bike so i can like actually get a good workout on a bicycle and when i was looking at those things like creativity and swimming and biking self-expression a sense of wonder i don't wonder about anything about swimming or biking like i have no (laughs) harmony Uh, like there's no friendship that i'm building on biking by myself or swimming by myself and i work out less like at this point in my life because I've lost where I find my passion and joy. I'm now like seeking it. Like if I go hiking, cool. Like absolutely. I'm in nature. Like I was just in, in Norway doing an outdoor education camp with a bunch of peach students. Like that was pure joy, harmony, wonder, risk, joy, like all of that. But I can't go hike every day in nature because it takes me X amount of minutes to drive to nature or ride my bike there. And I don't have the time. So then I fix it with weightlifting, like. uh
1: -uh. (laughs) Like. (laughs) But, But you see, you see, for me, I love weightlifting. I love weightlifting. But the reason I love weight, I mean, I love being in the outdoors as well. But the reason I love weightlifting is that that is my sense of joy, my friendship at the gym. That is my competition with myself, my sense of self. That's my power. You know, when I lift and I'm lifting more than some really big dudes in that gym, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I feel... I feel amazing. It's and it's and it's not a it's not a physical satisfaction, it's a psychological satisfaction and it's a it's a spiritual satisfaction too. It's it's something for me that brings me real joy. And and this is the point too, Risto, that everyone is so individual in how they experience this. You could find these things in the moment, they could come after, they could come over a period of time. When you when you start to feel these differences in your body and your minds, um, and so we can't define someone's joy of movement or pleasure for them, and we shouldn't try to. But imagine how beneficial it would be if all of our students understood how this worked, so when they left our schools, they could find their joy of movement, they could find their pleasure again, and if if they had been a a rugby player all their life and then they had had an injury they knew how to redefine themselves and they knew that their their life wasn't going to end because that big part of them did you know if we've really focused on on joy and finding meaning and being able to work through and find some strategies for that sort of stuff instead of how good you are at at a long jump for an example um you know it's I I think they would be great tools for people to have because as an adult, you want to try and find that joy of movement and that pleasure.
0: Well, in seeking that joy, I will go work out and I'll go figure (laughs) (laughs) finding that joy somewhere. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for coming on. I, I really enjoyed the read. Um, it made me question a lot and think a lot. And I, and I think both, um, um, you and Ian just like did a really good job talking about and breaking down um this content and uh, the citation list is a great uh great thing to dive into as well there's a lot of cool like um citations that i've pegged for for future reading as well as i try to get more of this kreshmar meaningful pe and that kind of understanding so um thank you for your time i appreciate it and thanks for sharing your work
1: both of them thank you for inviting me on it's been a it's been lots of fun <laughs> great
0: all right so uh that's all we have uh for you on this one if you have not yet um we really appreciate it if you share this with a colleague and i also want to thank um alba Rodriguez for her help in producing the podcast thanks